Hi, Danny here. Thank you for joining us. This segment is one of my favorites. I share my own personal experience and the mistakes I have done as a real estate investor. I hope you will benefit and learn from it and also use it as an executional action items. Also, I want to take this opportunity and invite you to join me on Wednesday, February 20th, to a class I'm giving in Irvine, Orange County, California, at 7 p.m. Just go to our website and click on events to find how you can register. Simply do it. .net is our website, and events is where you can find and register. It is free if you pre-register, but there is a door fee if you show up same day. If you want to join on that event that day, we're going to have a power session just before the class. The power session is an opportunity to ask questions and collaborate with the room about concerns and different real estate aspects you may have encounter, and you're not really sure where to, where to go and where, who to ask. 6.15 is a power session. 7 p.m. is the class. You can join us just for the class if you, don't, if you can make it to the power session. And now... Enjoy the next podcast. You're listening to Real Estate Investing Talks, a Simply Do It podcast. Your journey to success in real estate investment starts right here, right now. Here's Danny Bate Orr. Perfect. Thank you, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, uh, good evening, wherever you are. Hopefully, you are in warm location. A lot of our vendors, a lot of our uh, colleagues and peers are actually suffering in not so pleasant weather um, in the East Coast. I know my team in Chicago told me the city is pretty much shut down right now. Uh, pretty much shut down right now with. Uh, uh, with the weather they're going through, probably Indianapolis as well, and other parts of the country. So everyone I speak to tells the same thing. Freezing, cold, um, you know, not so pleasant. Here, shorts, sunny, not too warm outside. There was a pouring rain. Southern California yesterday, pouring rain, but it's an actually okay now. Well, thank you, first of all, for joining me. We do this session every week or almost every week. We are going to skip next week uh, due to some uh, travel schedule, exactly on Friday. And uh, the whole purpose of this session is to engage, talk, discuss, you know, uh, a brainstorm, whatever you want to call it, real estate investing. And that's what I usually bring to the table, my experience. And the whole, you know, I want what I'm hoping from you is actually to get some uh, feedback questions etc so my request for you is one or two one press some likes so other people can see that or share this you know session so other relevant people uh, can see that we're having this session uh, today or anytime and number two is you know put your questions your feedback your comments even if you don't have a specific question feel free to just say hey I like it I don't like it I agree I disagree so it's more engaging that's you know uh, it's going to be uh, more beneficial to me um, we record this session on a weekly basis and put it on our uh, main three channels, which is YouTube, right here, Facebook, right here, 
and podcast all the way down here. Okay, so everything is going to be di distributed in all those channels. You are most welcome to consume the live and the recording, however you see fit. One thing I do want to mention is that uh, before I get started, uh, on February on February 20th, which is a Wednesday, we're going to have um, a live event in the room, live as we can actually touch each other and shake hands and see each other in the room in Irvine, California, Orange County, California. We start, you know, we have a class that I'm providing it starts at 7 p.m. And we also have an earlier session that starts at 6.15, which we call the power session. The power session is an opportunity for real estate investors to come into the same room. And instead of just going and attending a class, an opportunity to collaborate, ask, you know, have a discussion on different things. It's always awesome to have those sessions because they are an open uh, session to people that, uh, you know, investors to kind of bring whatever concerning them, whatever they're dealing with. And don't always have the room to ask those questions. So power session at 6.15, main class that I'm teaching um, at 7 o'clock. You can also just join us for the class without the power session. That's not a problem. It's two separate events merges into uh, together. And if you pre-register, it's free. Uh, we're going to charge a door fee uh, the same day of the event. And I put the link, obviously, with all the details um, on, the, you know, on the comments. Now, let's get started with today. Well, today's session is actually one that I like, uh, like pretty much because it, I think it's a, it's a true value to investors. And what I'm going to share with you is the mistakes or the, at least the main mistakes I think I have done over the years um, when, uh, you know, over the years when investing in real estate. And I think I put it together um, in five major, major or main mistakes and which are um, buying for appreciation or the negative cash flow aspect, ignoring the hidden costs, um, investing in lots or what I call a tricky land deals, and I'll explain of course, uh, spread over too, too many markets and lack of guidance. So three, five things I'm going to elaborate on are those, and it's all coming from my own experience. And just so, uh, so you know, I've been investing in real estate for uh, since 2002. Makes it 17 years as an investor, 15 years more of a professional uh, person who's doing it on a larger scale and helping others. But I also consider myself still a student. I'm still learning. I'm still improving. I don't think you ever stop learning. Um, I keep refining my own methods, refining my own investment and strategies and, and finding new ways how to do things that I didn't think about, you know, think of doing before. So for me, it never stops. Um, so let's, let's just start helping and start uh, with my first, I think it's the, my, my first and the probably most significant mistake that I have done, which is, which is buying for appreciation or for using negative cash flow, which I see in, in, in a way in, uh, in, in, you know, somehow related. So, so buying for appreciation, which results in negative cash flow. When I started investing in 2002, and especially when I picked up the pace in 2004, five and six, the mantra or philosophy or strategy I was using was buy for appreciation. Everything was appreciating, right? So we would buy, so the goal was Let's buy as many properties as I can, right? And putting as little money down as possible. 5%, 10%, whatever, you know, as little money down as possible. Back then, 
you could have loans that not only a hundred percent but even 105 or 103 percent 103 percent loan means you don't even bring closing you know closing money to the table everything including the closing costs is financed by the lender 103 percent you know uh, um, um, uh, loan right so no money no money down right i didn't do those loans i think the the best the best the minimum that i did was five percent down and, uh, um, and and brought money to the table for closing now when you have such when you're such highly leveraged the one main result is that the the rent is not able to cover all your expenses so you are you know finding yourself in a negative cash flow situation so all my properties or many of my properties were generating anywhere from 100 to 300 dollars maybe even one seven hundred dollars uh, um, negative, maybe not, negative cash flow every month, okay? Now, what's the problem? Your house is appreciating, you know, let's say you're generating $4,000 in negative cash flow, you know, every year, right, from one property, which is before taxes, so it's not a big deal, right? And the house is appreciating annually 15000 right, or ten, or twenty, right? So, who cares? Right, it's four thousand dollar loss before taxes, and you gain, let's say, let's just even say fifteen thousand. Okay, great. Well, here is the wake up, you know, uh, uh, wake up aspect of it. When everything crashed, the values went down, right? And all of a sudden, you know, when you have when you have ca a negative cash flow, the way to compensate is from your own pocket. So let's say you have a house and it's generating. You know, $150 a cash flow, negative negative cash flow every month or on average, and you just dip into your pocket because you have income from different resources in your life, and you cover it. No big deal, right? It's only $150. When it's $200 or $250, and it's times let's just say pick up a number, 10 properties, or you know what, you know, uh, 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 make it 20 properties, right? All of a sudden, $250 per property times 20. That's five. That's five thousand dollars every single month, sometimes even more. And all of a sudden, when the crash happened, my income dropped because my income is, you know, related to real estate. So the income that I had before, and I was able to kind of supplement the, you know, the cash, the negative cash flow before taxes. All of a sudden, it was very difficult to make that supplement to add, you know, to dip into my, you know, to reach into my pocket and bring that money over. So I had to do a lot of maneuvers how to, to get out of that situation, but that was a very unhealthy situation to be in, okay? So not only that appreciation stopped, it crashed, the value crashed. It's true that during those times, um, you know, it's true that during those times, vacancies went up, sorry, went down, rent went up, so the cash flow did go, did improve, the values went down, obviously, so no longer appreciation, but the challenge was to, you know, to, you know, to, to we call it, to feed the alligator. Month after month after month, you know, you have to come up with funds in order to feed the alligator of a negative cash flow. So that philosophy didn't work, for me it didn't work, and today when I talk to investors and I, you know, share with them, I tell them this is why I don't want. I would rather you don't do you know negative cash flow. Now I'm not saying no. For me, the negative cash flow aspect, right? When something investors want to reach into that, is a little bit more of a of, of a gray area. Ideally, I think you should avoid it. 
because every house is self-sustaining. It has its own you never really need to reach to your own pocket to cover for those things. So ideally, you don't need to, you know, every house is independent of you. Okay? So that's number one. But let's just take a few examples. Let's say you are a super wealthy person um, or, or your income is very stable and, and you are going into a situation with one house that is generating for this reason or another $150, not by design, by, by, you know, sorry, by design, not by mistake, or not by, because things change, right? But by design, it's generating $150 in negative cash flow every month. And you say, hey, Danny, listen, my income easily covers that. And I have one of those houses, no big deal. Okay, I can understand that. I can relate to that. That's fine. Or maybe you have multiple properties and you say, you know what, my cash flow from all my portfolio is $1,000, my next house will generate a negative $150 per month. That means my portfolio is now generating $850. I'm still okay. No problem. Right? Now, why would you do that? Maybe there's a good opportunity for, you know, to get to buy a house, or, you, know, uh, you know, for let's just say you're buying a house, an opportunity to buy a $250,000 home, but you are able to get it for 200 for one reason or another, but you know the rent is only going to be 1750. And 1750 is generating an AV cash flow for this property, but you see the, the value of the, in the equity. Okay? Just using an example, you think that in that case, that could work for you. And that's fine. So if you do it by design and you understand the consequences um, you know, or implications of the negative cash flow and you can sustain it and hold it, no problem. Ideally for you, uh, my suggestion is not to do it by design. Every house, ideally, you know, um, should be independent. So mistake number one, I suggest always to buy, you know, not only, not, not just always to buy with a positive cash flow, at least by design. Also, don't base on appreciation. I can tell you right now when I analyze properties, you know, in my Excel, which I use, probably used well over 15,000 times and all the, our investors are using it and all our realtors are using it is that we factor in appreciation at an inflation rate let's just call it three three and a half percent you know we don't put seven percent or ten percent into the excel into the analysis because that could change so for me i'm when i'm analyzing properties i you know i take into consideration that inflation is there but i don't um i don't uh, you know a uh, factor more than maybe three three and a half percent maybe maybe four is like the top because I don't want to bank, I don't want to bet on appreciation. That's too, um, that's too uh, uh, tricky. Let's just put it this way. So mistake number one, negative cash flow. And mistake number two, ignoring the hidden cost. Okay, what do I mean by that? Many times when we analyze, we don't factor in actual cost. Actually, to this day, I see people, professionals, you know, advertising properties, and they're representing the cash flow. But for when they do the cash flow analysis, vacancy doesn't exist. Interesting. And maybe or maybe not is there. And uh, you know, and the repairs are very screwed towards the minimal ones. You guys try to analyze properties in a very realistic way. If you go based on you know worst case scenario you'll never invest right if you go base case scenario nobody wants to do that but if you go like what we do is realistic case scenario and maybe be a little bit conservative and make sure vacancy and repairs and insurance and property taxes 
um, um, and what else? Of course, mortgage payments and, and property management and leasing fee. See, some of those guys, they're saying, oh, of course there's many. Oh, we forgot the leasing fee. What is the leasing fee? It's that we pay to get our house leased if we have one. Sometimes we don't. Some, many times we do. All of those things are the hidden costs that many of the uh, investors just neglect to, uh, to put in or to account for. And you know what? Those can be 20 bucks a month, 15 bucks a month, you know, maybe 50 bucks a month. You know what? Two or three of them add up to $75 a month. That's, you know what? Uh, uh, 750 to a, a, um, um, $900 a year. Not a lot of money, but your cash flow, many times, if you're buying with a mortgage, it's already tight. All of a sudden, you kind of missed on, you know, $75 a month. That's quite a lot when your cash flow is only $150 a month or so. That's 50% of it. So keep those things, you know, in, you know, intact. Remember, look for, you know, don't neglect those little costs or small costs, you know, that are there. Not the ones that you may not know can happen once in five years. I'm talking about the, you know, the recurring monthly or multiple times a year, such as expenses, HOA, leasing fee, etc. Okay, very important as well, the hidden costs. Now, mistake number three is buying, I call it tricky lots, tricky quote-unquote lots. Not, what do I mean by that? I don't have a problem with buying land, but some of the mistakes I've done earlier on, I purchased, you know, a piece of land in a developing community, right, where the developer is still building up the community and, you know, setting up, you know, the lots and setting up roads and everything and maybe community center, etc. right? And in a beautiful place, in an excellent location, it's all super hyped and we get a really good, you know, bulk discount, blah, 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 you know, that's how it looks like. Usually it looks like this, a huge track of land, someone bought it, you know, and, and, and they're developing or, you know, creating parcels, of multiple lots to be built eventually, right? And you are buying a piece of land, maybe half an acre, an acre, maybe more. You know, in this community, you have fixed costs such as at least HOA many times and, um, uh, and, and property taxes, okay? Not a lot, maybe a few hundred dollars a month, maybe a hundred bucks a month, still it adds up. And what is the plan? You're buying and what? hold on to it. So if you're gonna hand, hold on to it, because that's the premise of the developer, we're gonna invest and we're gonna do, do this. First of all, they need to, we have to, we are depending on the developer to deliver, to build those facilities, to build those amenities. If they don't, for one reason or another, the area will not appreciate. Now, even if it does appreciate, here's what's gonna happen. It's you and maybe 50, 60, 100, 150 lots around you, all appreciating at the same time. And when you want to sell, guess what? Right? There's, you know, 20 other lots nearby, next door, literally, that are on the market for sale. So all of a sudden, you have a lot of competition. Okay? Not only that, many of those scenarios are the developer is still controlling the area. Right? Most likely. And he's still selling lots. So who is your biggest competitor? The guy who's the most powerful one, who is, you know, going to block your sale, interfere with your sale. He's not going to tell you that, of course. And, he, and he's going to drive, you know, all the, all the interested buyers to him. Now, if you're going to do this, buying this kind of a lot, and you're going to build on it, 
your in-house, that's a whole different story. I don't have a problem with it. I think that's fine. Maybe a good opportunity. But if you're just going to hang on to it and plan on selling it, whether there is a developer or not, that's problematic. Let me give you two examples. I bought such a lot outside in a beautiful area of San Antonio, Texas. And when the economy slowed down, I wanted to sell it. And the developer said, no problem, we're going to help you sell it. You're right. BS, that's the, the answer. It was a gated community with a sales office. You know, uh, at, at the gate, every person who was interested buyer came through the gate, went straight to the, you know, to, the, to the office. Where do you think the developer took those people? Which lot to see? Mine or his, right? Obviously, we know the answer. When my agent, who's not associated with the developer, wanted to access the lot, they would always give him hard time, right? Blocking access, so to speak. When we put signs on the lot for sale, guess what happened to those signs? Disappeared, right? So, buying in this you know, scenario, everything is working you know, not in your favor, unless you have a, a specific strategy that I'm not aware, but just buying and holding, and then competing with everybody else, I think it's not a very good you know, way to go about it. Also, sometimes there are areas such as Cape Coral, Florida, where not, there's tons, hundreds if not thousands of lots right next to each other. Beautiful area. But if you're buying those lots with a, to wait for them to appreciate, all the lots around you are going to appreciate as well. And you're going to be competing. So whatever everybody's doing, you may benefit from it, but there's a lot of competition. Okay, so be aware of those things. For me, buying in this development with a future, you know, appreciation, tricky, very tricky. That's why I call it tricky lots. I'm not a big fan of that. Now, if you're buying a lot in a well-developed community, and maybe in that community there are 90% of the lots are built with houses and 10% or even 5% lots that have not been built on, that's a whole different story. For me, that makes perfect sense, especially if you want to put a house over it. So buying a lot inside a community that is already mostly developed, that that's, shouldn't be a problem. Or at least I don't think so, at least, you know, and, you know, what your strategy is. But just buying for the sake of buying and hoping it will appreciate and then you're competing with 100 other lots or 50 other lots or with the developer, for me, my suggestion for you, based on my more than one mistake, stay away from that, right? Unless you're going to build on it. All right, moving on. We are at mistake number four. Number four, okay? And that's spreading over too many metros. I thought when I was a younger gentleman, guy, and a younger investor in my experience, I thought it makes perfect sense to buy one house here and one property there and two property there and nine properties there, kind of all over the place, right? So I had properties probably six, seven, eight, nine metros. I don't remember exactly, right? Something like that. And what I found, you know, I thought that makes sense, right? We are, I am using a diversification and I'm diversifying. Should something happen to one or two of the houses in one area, maybe that something that um, I should, uh, you know, that protect my portfolio. Well, yes, there is a lot of common sense and makes perfect sense to, to diversify. But why would I actually suggest to reconsider the diversification at least too much? Because when you buy 
in one area or in multiple areas, especially if it's rental properties, you're going to have to set up multiple relationships with multiple property management and other vendors, right? Let's just focus on property managers for a second. Think about it this way. Let's just say you have 10 properties in seven areas, okay? And that means you're working with seven property management companies. Each one of those companies have a different DNA, different culture, different methods, different system, online system, different you know, processes, etc. It's, it's maintaining a different relationship, right? And it's, it's annoying. Maintaining a relationship with one property management company, for the most part, even if they're good, it's always annoying. There's always annoyance, noise to it, right? Just human connections, relationship. Two, same thing. Seven, much more noise in the system. My suggestion for you is actually try to focus on, you know, depending on how many properties you're buying, but maybe one, two, three metros, right? Depending on the number of properties. Maybe try to be somewhere around five to 10 properties in one metro before skipping to the next one, as long as, you know, it makes sense, right? What will happen is this. First of all, you'll be a little bit bigger player with one property management company, which can translate to better services and better fees, right? That's just one thing. Second, when you, when you maintain other relationship besides the property management, maybe there's a realtor or other vendors, it's easier, right? It's easier, you find that person, you stick with that, let's just say some handyman. Um, when you travel, it's easier to just go to one metro or two and not start you know, bouncing in multiple metros, even if they're relatively close, right? More efficiency of your time. So a lot of people think I'll buy one here and buy the one. You know what? Rethink that thought. It's maybe when you factor the diversification of your portfolio versus the, the uh, um, management and control of, of everything, that will, that, uh, um, that you should weigh the odds. I don't think it's necessarily best to diversify too much. That, again, this is, I'm sharing my experience. And by the way, I would appreciate when I'm speaking, your feedback, your comments, and of course your likes. So that will be kind of something I'm getting from you. So please don't be shy. And uh, you know, you only need to click on this. It's right next to you, the one, you know, your mouse. So please do that. Uh, that's always appreciated. We are going to uh, mistake number five, which I call lack of guidance. Well, let me put it this way. When I started and when I was in, taking my, my earlier stages as an investor, I did have limited guidance. Thank you for the likes. Um, and what I mean by that is there were people around me that supposed to be guiding me, but every time that I spoke to one person or another for seeking advice, I felt that the advice I'm being given is bias. It's not telling me what's best for me. It's what telling me many times what's best for the another person. That's not good guidance. So for the most part, make sure you find that mentor. Whatever niche you're in, right? When you find a mentor, and it's going to cost you money. A, it doesn't have to be a lot of money. B, see that mentor is going to give you A, many times already set up you know, uh, uh, systems and processes and connections and teams and vendors. Okay, that's just one thing. And then every time you have a question, 
You're going to run that question or challenge or, or obstacle or issue. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. When you are individually investing, even if there are, you know, Facebook around, uh, around us and groups, sometimes you need to kind of brainstorm with someone and say, you know, here's what I'm going through. Here's the challenges. Here's what I'm concerned about. Sometimes you have someone in your own network that can provide you that. But if you go to a mentor and you work with that mentor, you're always going to have someone who's not only just knowledgeable, who's been through those things probably many, many, many times, right? For example, myself, I'm not saying you should, you know, well, I am saying you should all hire me as your mentor, but I'm just saying it doesn't have to be me, okay? Someone who's done many transactions, not just five of them or 10 of them or 20 of them, and someone has been through ups and downs and obstacles and, you know, and they, this person can, you know what? It's going to give you shortcuts. It's going to give you safety. It's going to give you direction. Sometimes even put you back on the right track, Okay. I didn't have that when I was uh, uh, starting, right? When I was starting, 2002 and 2000, you know, was the, fr the start, and 2004 was the really when I really started doing it more. You know, Facebook was not around, and the internet was, uh, you know, was still you know, obviously around. Google was a startup. A lot of the information that we have access to today was not there, but still, you need someone to kind of give you direction. And, you know, a good mentor will even, you know, watch your back and say, you know what, I don't think it's the right thing for you. I can tell you for personally, multiple times I told someone, don't invest, not yet, fix this, do that. This house is not right for you, right? That's a good mentor for me. Someone that will watch out for your best interest, not their own best interest, okay? Someone that has you in mind. So lack of guidance, especially when you're starting, but you know what, even for experienced ones. The challenges an experienced investor is going through, someone who's we've done it several times, are different than the one who's starting, a beginner. But there are still challenges, and you get stuck, and you're not sure what to do. Um, it could be a general portfolio and strategy you know, situation, but it also can be um, a situation where, um, where you're uh, concerned about a specific situation. You're having an issue with a tenant. You're having an issue with the property management, right? And you're not sure what to do. Sometimes you just need to pick someone else's brain and then communicate with that person. Very good. So that's the last point. So for those of you who joined a little bit later, I shared, you know, the five mistakes I've done as an investor um, over the years or the main mistakes. Uh, the first one was buying for appreciation and not really truly understanding the aspect of negative cash flow. Um, the second one is ignoring the hidden costs that come with analyzing rental properties such as HOA, vacancy, and other things. Um, the third thing I talked about is why I dislike buying certain type of lots of land. I call it the tricky lots. Uh, that was the number three. Number four, uh, not to be spread over too many metros which uh, creates a lot of hustle with maintaining multiple relationships with vendors. And the last thing is lack of guidance. So with that said, those are the topics. I just want to say again, um, if you joined late, this is recorded on YouTube, on Facebook, and on our podcast. So you can consume all of those uh, through any of those channels. We uh, upload uh, them every, every week after we're done. Thank you for your likes. I really appreciate it. Uh, second thing, we do this session every week on Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Um, so um, join us on the live if you want. Um, next week, I'm going to be traveling. So we're not going to have a session, but we're going to resume it the week after. 
And lastly, if you look at the top of the comments, we do have um, <coughs> we do have uh, uh, an event coming up in Irvine, Southern California, Orange County on Wednesday, February 20th at 7 p.m. We start with our class and at 6.15 we do a powered session, um, which is an opportunity to ask questions and discuss and collaborate with, with the people in the room. So that's coming up. It's free to pre-register. There is a door fee if you show up at the, at the day of the event and it's in Irvine. Uh, with that said, I will wait for 20, 30, 40 seconds for your questions. If they're coming, comments. Thank you, Bracha, for the comment. Um, and uh, if there are any questions, I'll be happy to take them. And if not, we will wrap it up for today. So I'm going to wait a few seconds and I'll see if questions are coming in. And I will say, if you are uh, watching this or listening to this on the recording, please uh, contact us, get in touch with us about investing, get in touch with us with your questions. Uh, you can find us on simplydoit.net, simplydoit.net. And our main email address is meet, like meeting you, meet at simplydoit.net, meet at simplydoit.net. Okay, I see one question. Any tips on how to select metros? Absolutely. Let's do that. Okay. Um, well, I will share with you my philosophy, my recipe for selecting metros for rental properties, right? I'm talking about only rental properties. So for me, number one <coughs> is the metro size. The metro size got to be not the city, got to be, in my opinion, at least 1.5 million people population-wise and up. I like to even be at 2 million and up, right? There are plenty metros in the U.S. that follow that uh, criteria. So that's my number one. Number two, I want to make sure there are multiple industries and multiple big employers present, okay? I don't like Vegas for that reason that much because it's not that diversified economically. But there's plenty of markets, you know, that do provide that. I don't like areas that are, let's say, a smaller metro. I'll give you an example, right? Boise, Idaho, okay? Boise, Idaho, right? There's nothing wrong with Boise, Idaho. Not only there's nothing wrong, I visited Boise, Idaho multiple times, and I love Boise, Idaho, okay, as a place. And I have flipped multiple properties in Boise, and I had a gal that I've worked there, superstar. I love her. She's a professional, straightforward, honest person, right? But when it comes to rental properties, Boise, Idaho, as a metro, is only 850,000, 900,000 ish, you know, population-wise. Uh, population not big enough, in my opinion. Second, the local economy is not very strong, right? So not if, but when the economical slowdown downturn is coming. We want to be in a metro that it has easier time sustaining that period of time, okay? It's not if, it's when it's coming, okay? So Boise, Idaho is not necessarily going to crash, but Boise, Idaho is not as an economical, as a strong economical base because of its size and employment, right? So that's my second, remember. So we talked about size of the metro, you know, diversification and, and, and who and how many big employers, okay? Um... Then I like to go to states that are um, favoring the landlord, okay? The laws are favoring the landlord. Rule of thumb, how do you know? Usually, red state is going to favor the landlord. 
Blue state is going to favor the tenant. If I run into an eviction, I want to be able to process that eviction as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible. Okay. Now, you got to understand one other thing regarding eviction laws. Many states that the laws are favoring the landlord, the tenants know they live in a state that is favoring the landlord. So the setting for the tenant is not that good. So we may even avoid eviction in the first place just by, just by the tenants know they have the losing hand in this state. Okay, so it's not just how the eviction laws process, how fast they go through the courts. It's, all, all, it's, all, it's also what's leading up to that. Okay. Um, next, of course, I want to be able to go to areas that the numbers work. Okay, let me give you an, a, a bad example, unfortunately. So one of the areas I have been asked about in many years, or in the recent years, or year plus, is Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas, right? Great. Who doesn't love Austin, Texas? Everybody. Growing. Great. It's the, it's the blue, you know, it's the, it's the blue area in Texas, right, where everything is red. This is blue. <coughs> Universities, music. Great. I love it. The problem with Austin, Texas, and by the way, Austin, Texas is about 2 million people population-wise, right? So there's nothing wrong with it. Only one thing. It is so difficult to find practically impossible, a, a, a relatively good cash flowing property, okay? Finding someone for, you know, I, I, I'm speaking to agents from, from, uh, from Austin. They're sending me a $225,000 house that rents for $1,600, $1,700. That's not gonna cash flow. Insurance rates are relatively high. Property taxes is high. It's gonna kill the cash flow. So Austin doesn't work. I wish, but it doesn't work, right? I'm still trying to see if we can find something that works, but I, I analyze properties again and again, and they're not cash flowing, right? So that's a challenge. So Austin, Texas could qualify with everything that I said until, uh, until now, except this. So we gotta find properties that are, you know, the numbers work, right? Um, usually we talk about the 1% rule uh, for, you know, rent purchase price ratio. So for example, a $150,000 house, we wanted to rent around uh, you know, $1,500 a month. That usually gonna be okay, right? In recent years, because values went up, we definitely see an erosion of the 1% rule to a 0.9, a 0.8, right? Not all the metros follow that rule, by the way. So you gotta really you know, take a look at it carefully. But if the numbers work and everything else so far, that's great. If the numbers don't, we have a problem. Portland, Oregon, another one. People love Portland, Oregon. It's really growing. I challenge you to find properties that the numbers work, right? You may be able to find one or a rare or buying at the auction. I, maybe, maybe. But it's going to be super challenging to make the numbers work in, or in Portland, Oregon as well. I wish it, you know, it were different. So we talked about the numbers work. Obviously, um, uh, uh, what am I missing? Um, I think the, the last thing I um, the last thing that I saw actually recently added to my formula is a secondary but important, and I think we're facing that um, you know, right now with the weather in the East Coast and the Midwest. I'm more and more want to stay away from the cold weather metros because when you have a house that is sitting vacant in such a harsh weather, 
you are exposed to the elements one way or another. One way or another. So we want to, you know, when you, my house in Tampa that is sitting vacant right now because it's listed for sale. Okay, I'm not that concerned, right? Someone will say, well, you have the storms. I know. True. I can avoid that too. So another house that is sitting, you know, in Nashville, vacant right now, cold, not freezing. Okay. So another secondary aspect for me is weather. Um, I think it's, it, it just gives us a little bit more peace of mind when the harsh weather comes through. So those are my main criteria to finding a metro. Hopefully that helps you. Okay. Are there any other questions? Thank you for your question. And it's good to see you. It's been a while, I think, since we spoke. You like the question? Give me a like. You don't like the answer? Give me a like as well. Great feedback, population, multiple sectors of jobs, states favoring landlords, numbers should, should work, weather resistant. Thank you for the summary. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. All right. Okay, you guys, if there are no other questions coming in, we're going to wrap it up for today. I really love this session today because it shares, you know, my, you know, my own personal experience, you know, gives that to you. I hope you will benefit, right? It's all about execution. And if you're just listening and not executing, nothing's going to happen. If you are executing and you're learning, great. I hope to see you at our event. I hope to hear from you in person. And I want to wish you great rest of your day. Uh, great weekend. And I hope you stay warm if you are in a, in a, in a cold weather area have a good have a good have a good day everyone bye bye thank you bye bye congratulations you're one step closer to success in real estate investment you've been listening to real estate investing talks with danny bait or to learn how simply do it can guide you through the real estate investment process and achieve nationwide success visit us on the web at simplydoit.net Thanks for listening.